Thank you, Joe. It's really a privilege to serve you. And I am here to talk about identity today in Sunday school and in the morning service. Pastor Joe has invited me to speak on this topic. So in Sunday school, I'm going to be doing more describing of our culture and, frankly, less Bible teaching than I usually care to do. What I'm trying to do is to help us understand the situation to which we need to apply the Bible to help us focus our questions. And in the morning service, we will dig into some key Bible passages about identity. Right now, this concept, identity, is extremely important in Western society. And when it comes to identity, you have two options. You can be Queen Elsa of Arendelle, or you can be Martin Luther of Wittenberg. Let me explain what I mean. If you are not sure who Elsa is, if you don't recognize that picture, you either don't have a daughter or you live in a cave. (laughs) And that's okay. We need daughterless cave people in the Christian church too. Um, But let me quote Elsa's most famous song. I'm not going to sing it for you because I don't have the pipes of Adina Menzel. And let's see if you haven't at least heard these words in the background at Walmart. Uh, And in this quote, church history buffs, I encourage you to listen also for the famous words of Martin Luther of Wittenberg, the German Protestant reformer to whom this church and all evangelicals owe so much. And here it is, Reformation Day. Here's a quote from Queen Elsa of Arendelle. Let it go, let it go, and I'll rise like the break of dawn. Let it go, let it go, that perfect girl is gone. Here I stand in the light of day. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. That famous statement, those famous three words that were uttered by both Elsa and Luther are, of course, what? Here I stand. Just in case you don't know, Elsa sings these words in her super hit Disney film, Frozen, which I admit my own children have watched more times than there are frozen fractals all around in the snow belt. Elsa sings these words defiantly into empty space. Her search for her identity has led her to leave her responsibilities as queen of Arendelle behind, cutting herself off from those who love her and expressing who she believes to be her true self, even if it means she lives by herself in an ice castle on a mountain. That same search for self-expression will very nearly lead to the death of her sister in the movie, Anna, which is the one person who really loved Elsa with True love, a really heartwarming sisterly love. Elsa had tried to keep her true identity hidden. Her parents told her, don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. But, she says in her famous song, Let It Go, she couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I tried. Her big anthem, Let It Go, is her decision to express her identity. She can't hold it back anymore, she sings. And she says, I don't care what they're going to say. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. On the lips of Elsa, at least at this point in her story, your identity is whatever your strongest desires are. And you should express that identity no matter what other people say. 
even though in the end of the story, thankfully, Elsa comes to a somewhat better viewpoint, it's interesting and instructive that this song became the movie's mega hit. It tells our culture what it tells itself, and it was a brief fad for young girls, 9 to 13, to record versions of them singing this song and put it up on YouTube back in 2013 when the movie came out. This song tells our culture what it wants to hear over and over, and even toddlers have gotten the message. I would say, like, just, just follow your, just do what you do. Don't, don't let someone else take over for you. It's different, see? Different. But it's still good advice. Yeah. You just do what you do, man. Yeah. It's Don't worry about it from else, right? Yeah. What other people are saying. Yeah, just, just, just try not to think about what they're saying and just do what you do. I'll repeat the basic message that this toddler has delivered to this church. You do you. Follow your heart. Don't let other people stop you. Be yourself. Now, one more video clip. This is a really important um, video clip with massive intellectual depth from The Simpsons. And I'm... I'm flying out tomorrow, and Pastor Joe said I could do this, so <clears throat> don't be mad at me. I wouldn't do this at my own church, but when I'm visiting, it's okay. Um, just to be clear, I don't watch The Simpsons anymore, but I still remember these moments from my teen years, and they stick with me, and they actually help me understand my world. And you're about to see Homer Simpson all ready to fight a bear. Okay, let me set the scene for you in order to demonstrate his manhood. Don't ask why. His wife Marge and his daughter Lisa tell Homer he cannot fight a bear. Okay, now listen in. Now look here, mister. I forbid you to fight a bear. What kind of example would I be if I didn't take revenge on things? Dad, you can't take revenge on an animal. That's the whole point of Moby Dick. Lisa, the point of Moby Dick is be yourself. <laughs> oh... I find that to be so amusing. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Why is this funny? I still, I've watched it like a thousand times and I still keep laughing. Would this have been funny? Did you, you know, first I have to ask, did you hear what he said? The point of Moby Dick is be yourself. Now, ninth grade or 11th grade English students, is that true? No. Why is this funny? Why did they make this joke? Would this have been funny in 1851, the year that Herman Melville published Moby Dick? I don't think so. Would this have been funny in 1922? Actually, I happen to know that back then, the phrase, be yourself, actually meant, like, go jump in a lake. Like, just get out of my face. Um, language changes over time. That's actually kind of my specialty. Which means that I think this joke from The Simpsons would have made the same sense then in 1922 that Spanish jokes make to me. Like, I can understand every word because I've studied Spanish, but the jokes just go completely over my head. Everybody else is laughing, and I'm just wondering what in the world just happened. So why is this funny now? The Simpsons writers were picking up on something that oozes out onto the floor at the bottom of our culture's bookstore shelves. The baseline advice of so many television shows that my wife and I just can't believe how often this message gets preached. 
Be like Elsa. Be yourself. Here you stand. So a huge sign in the art store window that is at the entrance to my beautiful little town up in Washington State says, love is love. If anyone questions whether you should really be loving someone else's wife or someone of the same sex or someone under the legal age, well, here you stand. So a decidedly white woman born with blonde hair identifies as black. This actually happened. You may know the story. And our culture lacks the will to really condemn this weird act. If she truly feels that that's who she is, well, who are we to judge how she identifies? Here she stands. So an Olympic men's decathlon champion, 30 years after his global triumphs, identifies as a woman. And you may know this story. And our culture cheers harder for his wig and mascara than they did for his Olympic gold medals. Here he stands, or lounges, rather, on the cover of Vanity Fair in an image I wish I didn't have to see. So I wish I could get in on the act. I wish I could personally identify as the host of the top Christian YouTube channel. My tiny subscriber numbers would be an inconvenient fact put forward by people who doubt me and are trying to stop me. My haters might claim to be following science and doing something called math and counting that they made up only because they're bigoted against me. But I know the true inner truth about myself as the host of the Top Christian YouTube channel. Who are they to question my self-definition? Be myself. All my desires are good. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Here I stand. This is our Western world. This is Elsa's world at least at that point in her story. As one of the best recent Christian writers on identity who has been to this church twice, Carl Truman, described Elsa's world. Truman said, We all live in a world in which it is increasingly easy to imagine that reality is something we can manipulate according to our own wills and desires and not something that we necessarily need to conform ourselves to or passively accept. Now, before we turn to Martin Luther's version of Here I Stand, I'll note that I haven't really done much other than describe Elsa's world. I haven't analyzed it. I haven't critiqued it. And it's possible that someone here, maybe someone without any background in church or in the Bible, might wonder why in the world I seem to be down on obvious important truths of our world. You know, mocking be yourself is kind of like protesting against Cheerios. Who does that? I'll just stop then to observe that there is some good in what Elsa says. It is possible to be a hypocrite, to be living a lie. And if you are, that situation does need to be resolved, right? It is possible also to be living under the crushing, unfair, unrighteous expectations of other people, maybe a mother, a father, a sibling, given the rules of Elsa's fictional world, okay, we don't actually have snow queens who can make ice sculptures, you know, with their hands magically, but given those rules where her powers are not sins, her parents should have showed her how to use her powers 
rather than forcing her to bottle them up, though in their defense they died when she was young. But here I stand ultimately opposed to Elsa's view of the world, it let it go, and her view of identity, because expressing all your innermost desires with no right, no wrong, no rules for you is not the way to, in the Bible's words, love life and see good days. Desire is fundamentally a good thing. We're not Buddhists who blame the world's problems on the existence of desire. God has desires, but right and wrong cannot be ignored because this isn't just a created world where everything we can assume is good. No, it's also a fallen one into which human sin has entered. Another insightful Christian writer that I'll mention later said that the problem with appeals to authenticity like that of Elsa, you know, don't be a hypocrite anymore, be who you truly are. The problem with these is they can be just an excuse for questionable behavior. If I do something that is inconsiderate of others or even harmful to myself, I can just claim I'm being true to myself. Virtues like patience, kindness, and faithfulness can take a backseat to following your heart. But what if myself is selfish, he said. After all, the abusive people Abusive spouse, the dishonest friend, the greedy workaholic, the malicious gossip, they can all claim to be true to themselves when they behave in character. The problem with being true to yourself is that too often the self abuses the privilege. Letting it go isn't the right way to resolve tensions in your soul. It isn't the way to flourish as our Creator intended us to do. And I want my neighbors in this world to flourish. I want them to love life and see good days. I want them to find their true reward in the Creator who made them for Himself because I love my neighbors. That's why I'm down on Elsa's view of self-expression and identity. Because when you reject the idea that God's creation is something to which you need to conform yourself, something you need to accept and even welcome, you will ultimately find hurt a lot of human hurt occurs when people belt out Elsa's song as they stride off toward their heart's desire and they run into walls that their creator placed there in order to protect them. People get sexually transmitted diseases when they let it go. They have identity crises. They set up their wives to find porn on their phones. They create fatherless or motherless children. They kill their own children in the womb. It turns out that no right, no wrong, no rules for me is a poor ethical basis on which to live a life, let alone run a society. We need to run all of our desires through a grid of right and wrong to discover which desires should be part of our identity and which must be denied and even, as the Bible says, mortified, killed, that's why we have to turn to the better Here I Stand of Martin Luther. And I've just realized that I've been preaching all of this right next to a picture of Homer Simpson in a bear-killing mask. So I'm going to go to what I hope is a black slide after that. Come on. Just so uh, the mental images aren't too jarring. <clears throat> Let's try this again. Let's turn to Martin Luther. 
Luther's here I stand is very different, isn't it? Because Luther's here I stand is standing on an entirely different surface and therefore has an entirely different meaning, a Christian meaning. Luther, who quite likely wouldn't have even understood our culture's obsession with identity, nonetheless knew the secret to getting identity right. In 2006, during a visit to Germany, which is uh, actually how I got to know my wife, we were on a mission team together, I stood where Luther stood when he uttered those famous words. Luther stood there under very different circumstances than I did, however. He was on trial for his life in more ways than one. In case you don't know the story, October 31st, Reformation Day, is a great day to tell it. Luther was a Catholic monk in a European world that was dominated by the Catholic Church. Catholic, that word itself, was a claim to universality, to being the only church, to holding the keys to God's kingdom. But Luther had begun to see in Scripture, by listening to God's word, by beating on the book of Romans to make Paul give him truth from God, he'd begun to see that certain practices of that Catholic church weren't just wrong, but actually damnable. Like people paying money to the church to get their loved ones out of purgatory and into heaven. He came to see, most importantly, that the Bible taught a different view of how to get to God than did the leadership in his own church. Luther came to the wrenching realization, I don't know if anything like this has ever happened to you, that he's got to work for reform in this institution to which he'd dedicated his life, made vows. The powers that be do not like reforms, not deep ones like that, and they pushed back hard. This came to a head when they called Luther to a special meeting in Worms, Germany. It's called a diet, and let me indulge my love of language for one second. I've always wondered about this, so I looked it up. That word, the diet of Worms, diet is actually related to our word diet, like going on a diet, um, because both mean a regular course of activity. A diet today is a regular set of eating practices. The diet of Worms was sort of like a government committee that also met regularly. Now you know. Luther, at this Diet of Worms, was shown all of his books and asked to recant all that he had written in them. This is the crushing weight of unfair and unrighteous expectations from other people. In this case, these people had swords and guns. And they were widely believed to also possess something more powerful, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. This is like the principal and the whole school board plus both state senators coming down hard on one poor lowly fourth grade teacher. This is like both parents and both sets of grandparents threatening a child with no Christmas presents. This is the whole weight of all the powers that be being dangled over the head of one man. Recant or else. And in one sense... This is asking Luther to totally reframe his identity, to go from being the monk who called the church to reform back to being the monk who didn't cause the church any trouble. How could Luther stand under such a crushing weight? The question is not how, but where. And the answer is here. Listen to what Luther said. My conscience 
is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. When you have an identity crisis of any kind, when inside you rage various confusing and conflicting desires, when other people are either trying to crush you or tempt you, this is the option our culture does not offer to you. You can stand on the Word of God. Standing on the promises, my church used to sing. The Word was not just a light to Luther's path, though it certainly was that. It was itself the path. The Word was the ground on which he stood. And here's the wonderful thing. If you stand on this divine surface, you cannot be crushed. No matter the weight pressing down on you, this is a place to stand that pushes back up through you and against your problems. I'm not saying that if you stand on the Word of God, you can't or won't be hurt. I'm not saying you can't even die. I'm saying you can't really die. Jesus conquered death and promised it would not really touch his own. The eternal life that God gives to those who rest their lives on the word cannot be taken away, Jesus says. The top powers of Europe were all arrayed against Luther from that moment till the end of his life. And yet Luther died of old age, not from an assassin's blade. His God protected him. And during your life, if you build your life, your identity on the rock of God's word, then when the storms of life arise and the rains come, as they so frequently do in this area in winter, and the floods come and they beat against your life, it will not fall. You are founded on the rock. Here you stand. Jesus promised this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or I would have no authority to say any of this stuff. If your conscience is captive to God's word, slave to God's word, and if God helps you as Luther asked, God help me, amen. If Christ has paid for your sins and given you his righteousness, then you and your identity are secure. You don't face the same pressures Martin Luther did, but there are some weights in your life, aren't there, in this fallen world that are poised, maybe at all times, to crush you? Stand where Luther did, on the word. So you are tempted to believe that your past sin is what defines you. You are an adulterer. You are an embezzler. You are a druggie. You are a cheater. You're a lazy loser, a bad son, a disappointment. But the Bible tells you, as we'll see in the morning service, that you are made in God's image and loved with an everlasting love. Your relative calls you and chews you out for the millionth time, and you deflate again. But no, you will believe what the Bible says about you. You have worth placed in you by the only source of worth, God himself. Here you stand. So... You are tempted to believe that love is love, that your sexual desires are the true truth about you. 
But the rock on which you stand, God's word, says that you are made male or female. And you are made for one spouse till death do you part. The Bible tells you you are made to glorify him with your body and spirit, which are God's. God owns your body. The cultural powers array against you, telling you, follow your heart. You do you. All your desires are right. No right, no wrong, no rules for you. But no. Here you stand on the rock of God's word. I briefly mentioned that Queen Elsa of Arendelle doesn't end the movie with the same perspective she has during her hit song. Uh, The reason I let my kids watch the movie is that the story ends up showing the walls people hit when they let it go. They hit a wall of loneliness as their new identity drives those who really love them, like Anna did, far away. Their sinful self-expression is never just something that affects them as individuals. No man is an island. We were made like the Trinity to live in community. That effort toward self-expression also robs something good from those who are in relationship with the person who lets it go. And this happens to Elsa. One of my favorite characters in all Disney films, actually, is Anna, Elsa's sister. She has Elsa robbed from her as a child by her parents' inability to lead Elsa wisely. Again, I don't want to blame them too much. They did die. That's something in their favor. (laughs) She has Elsa robbed from her again right after rediscovering their sisterly love when Elsa strides off and lets it go. They have this much relationship, actual knowledge of each other to go on, but Anna's loyal love for Elsa, not here to preach Frozen, but it's really remarkable. It's, it's, like a, it's like the scene from Ruth, when Ruth clings to Naomi. That loyal love is literally redeeming. It is nothing short of Christ-like. And watching that love for me in that movie, which I have seen more than once along with my children, it wasn't like eating too much sugar. It wasn't sickeningly sweet. Sometimes movies do that. To me, at least, that love was very believable. That love was not only like Ruth for Naomi, or like David for Jonathan, or like Peter for Jesus, or like Jesus' love for us. It was not only all those things. It was truly Christ-like because Anna's love led her to major self-sacrifice on multiple occasions up to and including her apparent death. Greater love has no one than this, that she laid down her life for a sister who tried to let it go. I did not come here to preach Elsa or Anna. I came here to preach Jesus and the Word, and you'll get way more Bible in the morning message. We're talking about cultural analysis here, which has to be done sometimes. And I do find it so interesting and rewarding that even when our culture wants to tell itself to let it go, there's something about the beauty of Christ-like, self-sacrificial love, of Christ's redemptive love that makes a movie like Frozen talk out of both sides of its mouth. What do I mean? When you hear Elsa sing, Here I stand! That's the only singing you're going to get. 
you're just knocked over by the power of this song and by the force that our culture puts behind the song. But a story that ends with Elsa expressing what she feels is her true identity at the expense of all who love her, that would not be satisfying. And even Disney knows this. The very people who preach, let it go, let it go, let it go, in so many movies, can't bring themselves to actually make that happen in the movie. Elsa ends up unknowingly stepping back toward the stand taken by Martin Luther. The writers of her story were by God's common grace that he gives to all people. They were falling back on their God-given consciences. They were made in the image of a God who is love. And they were putting that love on a kind of real display, a touching display by the end of the movie. Your identity is what God says it is. He is your creator. And that may or may not be what you think your identity is or want it to be at the moment. And in the morning service, we'll do a lot less examining of our culture and a lot more listening to what God says about your identity. What does the word that you must stand on, here you stand, what does it actually say about your and my identity? Pastor Joe asked for this Sunday school to be a little bit more of a lecture, so as in any good lecture, I'm going to close with some book recommendations. And uh, I've got one on the deep end, three in the middle of the pool, Oh, and I have uh, uh, three on the easier end of the pool, too. Something here will be interesting and useful to you. If you want to dive into the deep end, I recommend Carl Truman's major, lengthy Christian exploration of our culture's view of human identity. It came out last year. I read every word. I reviewed it for a journal. It was called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, that's Elsa, and The Road to Sexual Revolution. Just listen to that title. It means that Truman's book tells a long story. The story of how the way our world looks at the self, how that way rose from historical roots and triumphed over other views, especially the Christian one. If you want to know how in the world we got from wherever we were when you were born, which was clearly different to where we are now, take the time to read Truman. It's intense though, this is the deep end of the pool. So in the middle of the pool, Truman has an easier and shorter version of this same book coming out in March with Crossway. And listen to its title, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Also in the middle of the pool is a book by the wonderful Rosaria Butterfield. Do you know Rosaria? Okay, she's just fantastic. I so deeply respect and love this pastor's wife and former lesbian who wrote Openness Unhindered. Um, further thoughts of an unlikely convert, that's what she calls herself, on sexual identity and union with Christ. Butterfield, I just can't say it too much. She's an absolute gem and a former English teacher and so a fantastic writer to boot. Lastly, in the middle area of the pool is Brian Rosner's Known by God, A Biblical Theology of Personal Identity. Um, this book will sound, I think, a lot like a sermon series from Pastor Joe, rich and biblical, but also practical and warm-hearted. Now, in the easier end of the pool, I'm loading you up here, 
Rosner also has a somewhat easier and shorter version of his book coming out in 2022 with Crossway called How to Find Yourself, Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer. And if all you have time for is one chapter, actually Joe recommended this to me, Pastor Joe did, um, David Murray's heartwarming and encouraging chapter on, uh, on identity in his book, Reset, is really worth your time. He's super practical. He talks about being so super skinny in high school that he was embarrassed. I found that to be touching and helpful. And finally, in the lobby, and I don't make a single cent off of this, just so you know, I just want to get the truth out. My own book, Basics for a Biblical Worldview, this is a middle school textbook, like a sixth, seventh, maybe eighth grade textbook I wrote for BJU Press. It's brand new in schools this year, and it has a whole unit on identity. Let's go right to the Lord in prayer as we move into the intervening time before the service. Lord, we cry out to you. We as fallen people do experience conflicting desires, desires we know are good, desires our conscience that you've given us knows are wrong. We pray that you would help everyone in this church to first see clearly what it means to stand on your word and then give us grace to do so. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.